starting a new series this week uh, on the book of Revelation. And uh, that should be easy for you to find in your Bibles. It's at the end. It's the last one. So just go to the back cover and go left. All right. Um, and so I'm, I'm going to do a lot of prep work this morning because I don't think any book of the Bible has had more written about it than this book. I mean, it's, and, and more terrible, terrible things written about it than this book. I mean, it's unreal, the dross of pseudo-theological stuff that is out there about, it's amazing. Just trying to wade through it all to get to good stuff is hard. And by the way, if you want book recommendations, I can give those to you, um, a stack of books, all right? Um, but, but I think one, this is probably the least read book of the Bible, too which I find very fascinating. It's been written about the most and probably read the least of every book in the Bible. And most of us, I think, probably just kind of, we just kind of say, well, it's all this future stuff that has no real connection to me right now in my life, right now where I live. What will happen will happen, say la vie, shoulder shrug, I'll just read it later, right? I think that's kind of, and on top of that, we feel we've heard it's really confusing and hard, and so we're like, ah, I'll just stick with the obvious stuff. You know, I'll just stick with Paul and the Gospels, and I can understand that, at least some of it, right? I'm just not going to venture into this, the dark woods of the book of Revelation, all right? And I want to just, my job this morning, my focus this morning is to clear away as much of that crud in your brain as possible, okay? And then start and get into the actual text, Okay? Um, the word revelation comes from the Greek word, um, uh, where is it, apocalypsis, I think that's how you say it, which is where we get the word apocalypse from. You've probably heard that word, and all it means is revelation just means revealing something new, something that's been hidden that you didn't know has been revealed to you. That's a revelation, okay? So the word apocalypse doesn't mean, has nothing to do with zombies, um, it has nothing to do with Kirk Cameron. Uh, sorry uh, if you're expecting Kirk Cameron to pop up on the screen at some point. And I did not consult the Left Behind series to teach this. All right? That is not a commentary I recommend. All right? But it just means revealed, right? Uh, something you didn't know has been shown to you, and that's exactly what this book is. Okay? Uh, the focus is not just on end times. And what's going to happen and get out your timelines and, and I want to know what's going to happen next. It's about you right now and what Jesus has to say to you right now. Um, everyone in this room, believer or not, weirdly enough, already has some established thoughts and assumptions about what this book is about. It is amazing how our culture has been inundated with stuff that's sort of in the book of Revelation I mean, just think about that word apocalypse, how many times you have seen that word in our culture and the sort of like uh, the, the world exploding or coming to an end theme in movies and books and comic books and everything else. It is, I mean, all of that, that genre of literature and film comes from this book. You all have thoughts about what this book is about. And I just want to tell you, many of them, if not most of them, if not all of them, are completely wrong. All right? And so I just want to encourage you. I'm not trying to insult you. I'm just saying the challenge for me preaching this book is not 
the book itself. It's all of your thoughts about what it's about. And you sitting there waiting for me to tell you who is the Antichrist. Is it Donald Trump? Is it Hitler? Was it Ronald Reagan? Who is the Antichrist? I'm like, stop it! Right? And you're waiting for me to tell you, and I'm not going to tell you because that's not what that's about. Okay? And so I just want to kind of clear away some of those things. So let's look at um, Revelation chapter 1, the first three verses. It tells us what it's about, which is wonderful. It says, the revelation of Jesus Christ. So what is the revelation? Jesus. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John. Okay, so we have a, the revelation is being passed from God to Jesus, from Jesus to an angel, and from the angel to John. Okay. Verse 2, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. Yay, I just got blessed. And blessed are those who hear. Yay, you just got blessed. And who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. So can you just put your faith in those words for a minute? If this, because what I want you to do is I actually want you to read the book of Revelation. <gasps> what? I don't want you to just listen to me tell you about it. That's cheating. Really, it really is cheating. You need to read it for yourself. Even if you're reading, you're like, I don't understand this, man. What's with all this symbolism? I will help you. But I want you to read it and read it in faith that this verse is true. That you will be blessed if you read it and do what it says. Okay? I want you to trust that if you're intimidated. Because I don't want, I don't ever want you to just come here and listen to me tell you what the Bible says. Tell you about the Bible and tell you about God. And you never actually engage with him yourself. Okay? That's... That's like having your mama feed you by hand your entire life. Be a Christian grown-up and feed yourself, all right? Even this book, even this book that you are scared of, all right? Okay, so a couple of things. Some background about the book. The author um, is John the Apostle receiving a series of visions from Jesus through an angel. He has like an angel that guides him through. It's likely that John received this while in exile on the Isle of Patmos. He says that's what he did. Um, there are a few people that kind of question it, but we don't listen to those people because they don't like the Bible, all right? Um, he either wrote it down there on the Isle of Patmos when he received those visions, or he waited a little while and wrote them down later. That is up for debate. Um, most commentators date the book either just before AD 70, which is significant, because in AD 70, the temple was destroyed in a bloody, awful massacre. It was not just a temple that was destroyed. It was a lot of Jews. The bodies were piled up. They, they crammed themselves in the entrance to the Holy of Holies. And Roman guards slaughtered them, just stacks of them right there in the temple. And it, it's like, you can go read about it. It's incredible. Horrible disaster. 
So it's either written just before AD 70 when the temple was destroyed um, or in the mid-90s, not 1990s, all right, um, in the 90s before there was numbers before the 90, all right, in the 90s during the reign of Domitian, okay, who was also kind of uh, a horrible persecutor of Christians. Some interpretations of Revelation heavily rely on the date in which it was written. I think that's a mistake, okay? Because, I mean, I lean towards the 90s, but I don't know, okay? I'm going to be saying that a lot, by the way, so get used to it. Um, so I caution you against being too excited and getting too riled up about the date. I think that's a mistake. Some people would say, I'm making a mistake by saying, telling you that's a mistake, but that's where I'm at, okay? I think the date doesn't matter that much, but it is interesting to think about. The church at the time, this is in the latter first century. You just think about those dates, whichever one you like best, 70 or 90. So it's 70 or 90 years into the early church. Think about kind of what that means in terms of the church culture. It's, you're dealing, the, most of them will be second-generation Christians. So you have that first wave of Christians that became you know, got saved when the apostles started preaching. And now the churches have been established for 70 to 90 years, maybe. And so you've got the second generation of the kids, the children of that movement, are now, are now growing up into that, and they're taking on leadership, and things are starting to settle and get a little metastasized. Compromise starts to happen. Things that we are very familiar with in the American church in 2019. The struggles we have with losing our zeal, losing our passion, Getting, losing our focus, allowing false doctrine in and tolerating sin amongst the family in ways we shouldn't, that sort of thing is beginning to happen, all right? There's also increasing persecution and poverty among Christians. They go together because they've gotten larger and more obnoxious to the present culture. They don't understand them. And even how you define persecution is interesting because sometimes this persecution is like, I'm going to kill you, which is what we immediately think of as persecution. But there's also a tremendous amount of ignorance about what Christians are and misunderstanding and misrepresentation about what Christians are. They were called atheists because, by the Romans because they didn't fit into any of their established religions, which is fascinating. The first atheists were Christians. And the atheists stole our word. But those are the first Christians, so we didn't fit in a category, Right? Um, that there were rumors that you can read about in historical documents about these Christians who, who were cannibals because they talked about eating the flesh of Christ in their communion ceremonies. These, these Christian cannibals are in caves eating people, right? And they weren't. It was just the language Jesus used, which was offensive when he used it, and it was just as offensive when they used it later on. So there's, that's also persecution, which I think we're all a little familiar with. So we, we, there was also a lot of temptation to return to Christless religious worship. Because um, if you grew up in a Jewish tradition, worshiping at synagogue, and now you've, now you've been following Jesus, it would be an easy slide back to that because it feels very spiritual. But to just not do the controversial part that might get you killed which is the whole Jesus part. So there was a lot of temptation to move out of 
kind of Christian worship back into the Jewish traditions and say, well, I'm still worshiping God. What's the big deal? Right? There was a lot of that going on too. So what's my approach? This is where I disappoint some of you and some of you won't care. But this impacts how we read it. And I think this will help you. Okay. Uh, most of the controversy over the book of Revelation comes down to the structure of the book, how it works, how it's structured and put together. There are other things, but this is the main one, I think. The most popular view of Revelation is the futurist perspective. I'm not going to give you all the views because you would be bored, but this one is the most popular. It is the Kirk Cameron left behind view, okay? That all of the book of Revelation is about the future far ahead of us, right? And it's not connected to now. It's just future, okay? And we're waiting for this future only thing to happen, okay? It holds everything from chapter 6 on to the end of the book is for the future, specifically a literal seven-year period in the future called the Great Tribulation. And this view says that those chapters have little practical relevance to us today because they speak to events that will happen in the future, right? Which is probably the concept most of us have in this room about why you haven't read it. That's because it's way out there. It's interesting maybe to talk about, but it doesn't connect much to how I live right now. This leads to one of the biggest reasons that I hear people that don't read the book. They don't see how it immediately impacts them. Interestingly enough, in terms of church history, that perspective is pretty new. It's not the historically traditional perspective. It started around the 1800s, um, early to mid-1800s, was packaged with a theological perspective called dispensationalism. If you don't know what that is, that's fine. I'm fine that you don't know what that is, all right? If you know what that is, just know I don't like it, all right? This made popular by Charles Schofield. You might have the Schofield Study Bible. He was a dispensationalist. He's the one that popularized this idea. Don't go throw your Schofield Bible away, all right? It's fine. No one will mock you for your Schofield Bible. It was one of the first, maybe the first, study Bible that had the notes at the bottom, a little line and... You had the verses at the top and the notes down at the bottom, and it would explain the verses. It was one of the first, and it was hugely popular. He had this view of Revelation that was all future, okay? Dispensationalism was highly connected to a more fundamentalist view of Christianity in a time when liberal theology was a growing concern in the body of Christ. 1800s, early 1900s. There was a lot of liberal stuff, you know, the, we can't take the Bible seriously, it's all like theory and it's all this miraculous stuff didn't happen and that was happening in the seminaries and everybody was rightly very concerned about that. And so in reacting against that, this kind of fundamentalist conservative view of which we would agree with a lot, it said we need to take the Bible seriously and read it literally. And I'll talk about that in just a second. So it got associated with that, and what happened was when, at least the friends I had in high school, I went to a Christian school, and I had a lot of very conservative Southern Baptist friends and teachers, this idea of the book of Revelation being a perspective on Revelation, then you were a heretic. And then you throw into that young earth creationism was a similar kind of hallmark of that. If you didn't buy into one of those two things, or both of those things, you were suspicious. I had a lot of friends who got messed up over some of that stuff because they started reading their Bibles and they're like, well, maybe this is not really 
what I thought and started asking questions and you didn't get answers. You got anathema, right? Get out, you heretic, right? So I don't know if anyone here is in that world, but just I want to just tell you, just take a deep breath, all right? Relax, you'll be okay. So by the mid-1900s, a dispensational futurist perspective on the book of Revelation was the dominant view very quickly in terms of church history. Just in a few decades, this became the dominant view of the book of Revelation, and a lot of other things are connected with that. Um, so I don't hold to a futurist view of the book of Revelation, okay? So if, like I said, if you're waiting for me to tell you like when the uh, tribulation is going to happen and who will be here, I will talk about some of that, okay? I'm not going to ignore those verses, but my interpretation of those is going to be a little different maybe than what you expect. Um, and for those who care, I much prefer covenant theology over dispensational. Um, if you don't know what those words are, it's okay. You won't miss anything. Okay, so I see Revelation 6 through 19 as describing all of the church age of which we are in. The church age would be from the time Jesus came the first time, right? He was born Christmas, then Easter, right? That time, and when he's coming again. So two, two bookends on either end. We're in the middle somewhere, probably cl way closer down to this end. That's, that's what I think. I don't think we have much longer. It's exciting news, right? But how you define much longer? It's tough, isn't it? I mean, if you're talking about thousands of years, it's sort of hard to define soon, right? And God's idea of soon from an eternal perspective might not be your and yours and mine idea of soon, okay? But I think the whole, those six, that six through 19 is describing where we are right now in lots of different ways. That immediately makes this more relevant to us. You're not sitting there twiddling your thumbs waiting for this thing to happen and trying to pretend to be excited about just, you know, the timelines, which you're not, because you're like, what does this have to do with me? What does this have to do with the, 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 the call on us to advance the gospel and expand the kingdom and to follow Jesus and all of this stuff? And if it's all up there in the future, it's like, well, I can just put that down on my list of priorities. But if it's about right now, it changes things. And that's what I believe about it. One analogy that I've read is that of a football game. I think this is really helpful. If you were to set up cameras at a football game, and I'm not a sports guy, so I'll, if I make a fool of myself here, just consider it your entertainment for the day, all right? But if you set up cameras at different places in a football game, like let's say down close at the 50-yard line, right in the middle, and then another one way up in the stands at the top where you can see the whole field, and then cameras in the two end zones, and then maybe a blimp floating over top where you can see the whole stadium. And then you played the game. Each camera would have a very different perspective, wouldn't it? of the same events. It's like the end zones. At, at, on the same play, you'd have the ball going towards the camera, and then from another perspective with the ball going away from the camera, you'd have a close-up view where you could see and hear what the players were even saying. In another view, you wouldn't be able to see any of that, but you'd see you have a different perspective. And that's the way the book of Revelation is, talking about the church age. It's not always in chronological order, which confuses people. Each vision that John is see, sees is describing the same span of time from a different perspective, okay? 
While it does in some places speak directly of events immediately preceding the second coming of Jesus, meaning in our future, the bulk of the book addresses us where we live right here and now, and it uses prophetic symbolism, but it's mostly a pastoral book about how to endure suffering, how to behold Christ, how to live as a Christian in a world that doesn't believe what you believe, how to be faithful, how to value the church, all these sorts of things, how to deal with poverty and resistance and being misunderstood. I mean, that's all stuff that's very pastoral, and that's the bulk of the book, okay? So we need to talk about symbolism versus literalism. Conservative Christians, Christians, of which I am one, often say I take the Bible literally. So let's talk about this word literally for a second. Some of y'all use that word wrong. This is from an old English teacher, okay? You cannot say I literally just flew here. I just literally flew over here. That's an amazing miracle. You sprouted wings and you flew here, or you chartered your own plane to go two miles, which would be foolish. You did not literally fly here. You just really, really came here as fast as you could, right? So what some of you mean by the word literally, you mean I really, really mean what I'm saying, right? That is not what I mean by the word literally. And when people say we take the Bible literally, what they mean is what it says on the page is exactly what's happening. And I agree with that idea, with exceptions. We take the Bible literally unless the Bible indicates that we should not take it literally. So you read through like the book of Isaiah, and you see these, he's having visions and seeing symbols and things. The book of Daniel, the book of Ezekiel, all these prophets who have these images and dreams and visions that are not literal things, they mean something else. And it's obvious when you read it that that's what's happening, okay? That Jesus is not literally riding a horse. We may never see Jesus literally riding a horse, but it means something. We might see him ride a horse, but it still means something, right? It's not about just literally doing it. That's why this idea of the Antichrist is a great example. It's taking that literally means i got to look in my history book and find the guy who is the Antichrist, and I'm going to go on YouTube and obsess about it to the world. I'm sure it's Bill Clinton, and now Bill Clinton's not in power anymore, and you're like, oh, I was wrong. I thought it was Hitler, and then I thought it was this guy, and I thought, then I thought it was my principal in high school, and I thought it was my pastor, but he turned out to be that, and he's not that evil, and, and so you just kind of search. That's hyper-literalism. Okay, when it's clear that that's not how it's meant to be taken. All right, um, the Antichrist thing is about a attitude, an Antichrist attitude or spirit in the world, and there are people that can embody that dramatically, right? But it's also your neighbor who is infected with an Antichrist, anti-gospel, anti-kingdom, anti-you mentality, right? And we've all see how this relates. Ooh, I know what that's like, right? And so you take it out of this weird world of hyper-literal, you know, studying the globe and the history books, trying to find the guy to what does this mean? What's Jesus trying to say? That's what we're going to do, right? So I believe that the book of Revelation is symbolic, all of it. 
There were many places in Scripture where a little interpretation would be wrong. Um, prophetic symbolism like this book. One example is Joseph interpreted the symbols in Pharaoh's dreams as symbols, not as literal things. Okay? So if you want biblical proof of that, there it is. The question with Revelation is, what is literal and what is symbolic? I think all of it is symbolic, and that's how I'm going to teach it. And by the way, this is my challenge as we go through this book. It's what things to really explain and defend in detail and what things just to say, here's what I think, and just teach it. It's hard. And I'm just going to try to be led by the Spirit because I don't want this to take forever. I'm willing to take as long as we need, but not three years, okay? And I'm not interested in helping you win debates. That's a waste of your time. I'm just not. I'm not so I'm not going to give you all sides and give you this balanced, unbiased perspective. I am fully biased. I have an opinion, and I'm going to teach it like it's true, all right? That's what you want me to do deep down, all right? And there are times like when I'm going to say, okay, I know this idea is out there, and here's why I disagree with it, because it's in your way. Because of this, you can't see Jesus. You need to see Jesus. I'm going to get this out of the way so that you can see him. But otherwise, I'm just moving on. And if you want to have a debate with me, I will ignore your emails. No, I'm kidding. No, I might. I might explain myself further, but I won't argue, okay? Um, because there's a lot of room, okay? And so if I say something that you're like, man, I've been studying the book of Revelation since I was four, and I am all in futurist, right? Kirk Cameron is my hero, man. Don't make jokes about Kirk Cameron. He's my guy, right? That's fine. You can be here in this church and be happy, and we will get along and we'll be in heaven together, and we'll find out who's right and who's wrong. And, and when Jesus looks at me and says, behold, Ben was right, I will not gloat or, like, put you down and say, see, I told you so, because I will be fully sanctified at that point. And no one will even care, okay? So just don't worry about it. You can sit there and be completely wrong, and I, Jesus will love you anyway, all right? <laughs> so just don't, don't, don't stress, all right? I don't think there's a lot of that here, but we'll see. So, for example, the Reve uh, Revelation speaks of persecution quite a bit. I believe that's speaking of all types of persecution against Christians across the entire church age, past, present, and future, Okay? There are some specific persecutions that bear striking resemblance to what is being described, but that does not mean that those events are all that it refers to. Okay? So if you're like, yeah, but, you know, this event in history really sounds like that. I'm not going to be like, no, it doesn't. Or he's like, what about the blood moons? I'm like, ah, oh, it's cool. Right? But that's not, don't limit it to that. It means it's bigger than that. Okay? I don't know if I'm going to bring up the blood moons ever again. We'll see. All right. When John prophesies the various churches, this is another good example. We'll be in this in the next few weeks. In specific cities, those churches really existed in those cities. Okay? But we can also apply that to us now. It's very obvious when you read it. All right? This is not just about them there at that time. It also applies to us and our churches. You'll see the things that Jesus rebukes those churches for, we deal with right now ourselves. And we're all going to feel very convicted just like they likely did when they first read it, okay? 
So don't limit it to those things. All right. When I say symbolic, I can imagine some of you feeling very tired. Some of you are very excited. I love symbolism. It's my playground because I'm very creative and I love imagining. And it's just so fun to think about symbols and be like, what does it mean? Right? You're into that. But the rest of you are like, why doesn't he just say what he means? Why? And you just, just go, why do I have to do this, right? And that's how you feel. And so I want to help you a little bit. It is not that bad. You just have to zoom out from and not get so caught up in these, in, break the symbolism apart into its individual parts and hyperanalyze every single piece of the imagery, right? Well, it's a two-edged sword coming out of Jesus' mouth, so it can't just be, it's got to be one side must mean one thing, and the other side of the sword is this other thing. One has to do with Russia, and one has to do with the United States and the Cold War, and, and you get, and, and most of you are hearing that, and you're going, oh, just, just, just stop it, right? I don't even understand this anymore, right? So just zoom out. Take a bird's eye view. What does this whole picture, if you were to see it painted, right? We're going to read this description of Jesus next week. And it's very detailed. But if you were to see that, just use your imagination and picture it in a painting that somebody made. What would you walk away from after seeing that and looking at it for a long time? What would that tell you about the nature and character of Jesus and what he's like? Right? And all of a sudden, the whole thing opens up, and it's not hard anymore. Well, it tells me that he's got a sword. Like, when he talks, it's clear, and it cuts. That's the truth, right? And now you're not worried about all these nano symbols in the picture, and he's telling you something about who he is, okay? And I'll, I'll do my best to avoid that mistake. Don't break apart the symbols too far. And make it hard on yourself. Zoom out whenever you get frustrated and ask yourself, what does this mean? What's the point of this? Um, secondly, look for application of the symbols and general concepts first instead of specific events. That Antichrist thing is a great example. I'll refer to that lots of times as a good example. Is the general concept is there's an Antichrist spirit or attitude growing in the world, right? It's much more easy to understand than trying to find a specific person that embodies that the best, okay? So let me summarize. This is my approach as we're heading in. One, Revelation is about the time between the advents or the comings of Jesus, first and second, not only the future. Some of it's future because we're not at the end yet, right? Two, therefore, it's a pastoral book speaking to the church right here and now. Three, it is symbolic, That doesn't mean we're not taking it seriously. It just means we're letting it tell us how to read it, okay? And number four, it's deep, but don't overthink it. There are some tough verses, but don't overthink it. Don't overanalyze it. Keep the main thing the main thing. And the main thing is, leads me to my next point, Jesus. The title of this series is Worthy is the Lamb. He is the big idea. He is it. And I've been sitting in this book for like a year and a half. And I am just full of wanting you to see what I see, that Jesus is so, so worthy. He wins. He overcomes. He triumphs 
over Satan, sin, the devil, the world, all of it. All the enemies of your soul, he overcomes all of them for you, right? That's what it's about. Let's look at 2 Corinthians 3. Like, I thought it was about Revelation. When the 2 Corinthians, <laughs> cheater. 2 Corinthians 3, 12 to 18 says, Since we have such a hope, we are very bold. Not like Moses, who would put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. I'll explain that in a minute. But their minds were hardened. For to this day, when they read the Old Covenant, that same veil remains unlifted because only through Christ is it taken away. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. So what's this Moses thing about? Moses saw God in Numbers 12 and also Exodus 33. He didn't see him in his fullness or he'd be dead. So he sort of saw his, his, his glory sh shadow, right? Whatever that means. He sort of saw the, like if you shine a bright light and it reflects onto something else, that's what he saw of God's glory and it made his face, Moses' face glow and it was disturbing and scary for a long period after he came off the mountain and saw God. And so what he did was he put a veil over his face so people wouldn't see it and see his face, whatever that looks like, glowing. Maybe that's what we'll all look like in heaven, I don't know. So Paul says here that now we behold Christ, who is God, and instead of having to wear a veil, we are transformed by him. We can look at Jesus and not die. We can, be, we can look right into his face. And it doesn't kill us. Instead of destroying us or making our face glow so no one else can look at us, right? It transforms us to be like him. So how do we change and grow to be mature Christians? To be like Jesus. We just look at Jesus. And instead of wearing a veil, we take the veil off and every other people look at us and go, wow, that guy looks like Jesus. That's the transformation that happens. That's the goal. And this is what the book of Revelation is about. It's about beholding Christ and being transformed by him over and over and over again. And I want all of us to walk away from reading this book glowing, radiating the glory of Jesus. That's what I want, not going, look what I know. Aren't I impressive? I'm ready to argue with people on the Internet. My pastor fully armed me to argue on the internet. No, I want you to glow with the glory of Christ, not with the glory of your own knowledge, okay? I want you to glow like Jesus, okay? That's what we're after. All right. Revelation chapter 1. We already read the first three verses. Let's read 4 through 8, and you'll see what I mean. <clears throat>
John to the seven churches that are in Asia. Grace to you and peace from him who is and was and who is to come. And from the seven spirits who are before his throne. And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings on earth. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priest to his God and Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. That is the book of Revelation. It is visual. It is intense. It's energetic. You're meant to imagine and see what John is seeing. He is trying to get you to get your brain and your imagination sparking and imagining and seeing like what is because this is Jesus right now. It's not what Jesus is becoming in the future. Okay? It's not one day he will be like this. It's this is Jesus. This is the one we worship right now. He is the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. There is no one like him. And when he comes with the clouds, those who are not like him, are not redeemed, will wail in fear. And he says, even so, amen. Despite the wailing, amen. Because he's Jesus. And that's who I want to be with, right? Because I belong to him. And I can get into that, right? I, I want to read that. I want to see more of that. And we're going to see more next week, right? So I, I have on the back, I have weekly devotionals that will help you. I will try to help you ahead of time to prepare for each week, all right? So you pick one up and you'll see what verses we're going to do next week. You can read it. Right, it'll probably take you just one day. If you don't ever read your Bible, let that be the one time. All right. If you read it every day, just take one of those days and do that. Okay? So that you're reading ahead by what we're gonna do. All right. Why don't we stand up and pray together? God, we just thank you right now for revealing yourself to John and for John being faithful to write it down. And we just put our faith in what you say about it, which is that it, when we read it and do it, we'll be blessed. Holy Spirit, would you reveal Jesus clearly to us as we read? God, that you would deposit in us that simple phrase, worthy is the lamb. Worthy of all praise and all honor and all glory. It's all for him. Every good thing and every hard thing, times of comfort, times of persecution, 
times of blessing and times of loss, times of being misunderstood, times of poverty, and times of overwhelming richness. All of it, every last drop of it is for him. We don't own anything. Satan doesn't own anything. Only Jesus. Worthy is the lamb. Worthy is the lamb who was slain before the foundations of the world. So God, just pray that you would saturate us in his glory, in the shining of his face. As Paul told us that it would transform us to be like him. God, I pray that that would be the net result of our time in this book. God, I pray for anyone here who is um, intimidated, God, that you would wipe that away, that we, they can trust the word and trust the Holy Spirit to teach them. God, I pray for anyone here who might be just too opinionated to see past it and to see Jesus. God, I pray that you clear those things away. God, help us to see him. Reveal Christ to us, even now. In the name of Jesus, amen.